0: It is a little intimidating to be up here i agree and uh you see we decorated well for well for you this sunday morning this is actually uh some of the the backdrop for sister act the the musical that's uh, being put on by the bible college and i had the chance to go on thursday night it was really well done i still believe there's one more matinee performance this afternoon so if you haven't had a chance to check it out you could consider doing that if there's nothing else going on for you today um, we're going to uh, jump right into our sermon this morning. We have lots of ground to cover, and I want to just admit at the outset that, uh, that I was very intimidated and, and frustrated and uncertain this week in my sermon study, in a way like I haven't been before at, at SBF here. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to study. Hopefully, I landed at a place in which I feel comfortable and confident, um, but part of this was, was knowing that we're going we're gonna to look at four distinct scenes or visions that John has given in Revelation 19 and 20, and so it's sometimes hard to uh, to not just preach four different sermons, but to, to bring these all into one gathering point. And so <clears throat> I was reminded of the fact that we can make sense of these things together when we remember that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we are going to simplify, I think, in a helpful way, exactly what these visions are reminding us of as what it says about Jesus. And so let us do this together. We are going to be in uh, chapters 19 and 20 of Revelation, and as much as I would have liked to space these things out, we only have two more Sundays together in this book, today and next week, and then we will continue a different Advent series from there. And so, the beginning of Revelation 19 wraps up the thought of what we learned about last week. Last week was the fall of Babylon, in which... Uh, this, This desire to seek after wealth and luxury at the expense of others, even at the expense of other human souls, was personified by the great harlot Babylon and all of those who committed immorality with her. And the call for God's people was to come out of Babylon because she was doomed. And that doom and destruction was given and shown at the end of Revelation 18. And the beginning of Revelation 19 now is the people of God, those who did indeed leave Babylon, rejoicing over her fall and all of the Babylon-ness, all of that which was opposed to God, all of that which was self-serving, all of that which was actually evil and an abomination has now been done with. And so there is a great multitude, which is our signal of this numberless crowd of God's people at the end who are rejoicing at the fall of Babylon and the fact that the smoke from her goes up forever and ever, which is in line with the picture of God's complete judgment in Revelation 14. Hmm, I have a frog in my throat. Isn't it amazing how that happens right when you need to get up in front of a bunch of people and speak? Like clockwork. So Revelation 19 begins with really what is the final summary of the fall of Babylon. And so now we want to look at chapter, sorry, chapter 19, verse 6, which gives us this scene, the first of four, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's read some of these verses together. John hear something. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, "Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready." It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure, and the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is what John hears at this part of the vision. This is once again looking at this great multitude of God's people. We are now, once again, and, and will often stay in this time period now, at the end of the book, we are at the end of all things. And now that all of Babylon and Ness has been done for, uh, has been conquered, has been overcome, now there is this great rejoicing, <clears throat> which culminates in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the reason that this is given or symbolized by a marriage supper, Revelation is bringing to completion this theme of faithfulness between God and God's people to God through this this theme or this lens of sexual faithfulness. And so we had talked a bit about how the 144,000, which are sealed, are, are, are depicted as Jewish virgins. Their purity depicts their faithfulness to God. And that was countered by or contrasted with those who uh, sought after that harlot, the temptress, and, and committed adultery with the mother of prostitutes, Babylon. So there was those who stayed faithful and those who committed immorality or adultery. And so now all of the faithful are able to celebrate their faithfulness in this marriage supper of the lamb and the bride. And the lamb, the groom, is Jesus. We know that to be certain. And the bride is the church. The church is symbolized in in a few different ways, but the bride is called in Revelation 21, which we'll go over next week. It's called the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is the bride of Christ. It is the bride of the lamb. And once again, that's another image that goes up against Babylon, which was called the great city, which was full of adultery and immorality. And now there's the holy city, which is pure and faithful to God, the bride of Christ. <clears throat> but we understand even more specifically when we look elsewhere in the New Testament that the bride is indeed the church and that New Jerusalem also symbolizes the church. This is how Paul describes it in Ephesians 5. First, he says, Husbands, love your wives. So listen up, men. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So who is the bride of Christ? We are. It's the church. It's you and I. And we are able to be arrayed in beauty and splendor and in purity without spot or blemish, all because of what Jesus has done for us. And there will come a day, That one day that we are looking forward to and anticipating in which Christ comes again and he will come and then he will be able to say, yes, you are my bride, you are my people, you are chosen, you are spotless. He will describe his love for us. Now, just a few weeks ago, I was able to officiate the wedding of Lucas and Emily Bergen. Is it it still weird to, to say Lucas and Emily Bergen? Is that weird, Emily? Has it sunk in yet? Now, you guys were away on a honeymoon or something, so you missed last week. Don't worry. I'll uh, make sure that you catch up with all the notes of what you missed. But it was good to have you back. I'm glad you were able to join us this morning. And, and it's always fun to do a wedding. And, w- and when we have this imagery or this symbolism here of, of, of how uh, the, the, uh, the relationship between Christ and the church is symbolized by a wedding, we learn something about Jesus in these moments. And so one of the things that I love more than anything is to be right beside the groom when the bride starts to walk down the aisle. Now, what's been very common in my experience as an officiate is is for a lot of couples wanting to do pictures ahead of time. Um, but, But Lucas and Emily, you guys threw it back a little bit, and you didn't see each other at all that morning until those doors opened. And there was Emily, this beautiful bride, coming to meet the groom. And I get to stand right beside him and look at this kind of dumbfounded look and expression on his face. But what strikes me in that moment was that laser focus. I could have moved my hands in front of his face. I could have elbowed him in the ribs, and he would not have noticed me. He had eyes for no one else other than his beautiful bride walking down that aisle. And I love to look over, and I can just sense that love and that focus. And, And what I love about this analogy is that there are these pictures that God gives us in Scripture that allow us not just to understand how we relate to God, but gives us a glimpse, a little insight into how God relates to us. So for example, when, when the Bible says God is our heavenly father, then when I became a father, I not, I not only understood a bit of my role as a child of God, but I understood a bit of his heart for me as it reflected in my heart for my children. And so when, when scripture calls us the bride of Christ, and when I see a groom looking at the beautiful bride saying, wow, full of love for her, that gives me a glimpse of what Jesus feels towards his church, towards you and I. And there will be that day, the the day that we anticipate in which we will be all dressed up in this beauty and splendor and purity, and Jesus will look at the church that he chose and that he died for and that he purified, and he will say, wow. The first thing that's revealed to us is that Jesus loves. He loves deeply. He loves without limit or measure, and he loves you. That is us, the church, the bride of Christ. It's another interesting image because this marriage supper of the Lamb shows that we are both the bride and the invitees to the feast. Because as much as I love officiating wedding ceremonies, I really enjoy when my work is done and I just get to go to the party after. That's my favorite part. But even Jesus himself in his life and ministry taught about this fact. And he said that you are not only my bride, but you are also invited to celebrate that full advent of the kingdom with me. Listen to how he describes it in Matthew 22. Jesus spoke to them in parables saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Does that sound familiar? And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called and few are chosen." And so there are some distinct and clear parallels with this parable and the wedding feast that we see in Revelation 19. And what is true is that this invitation to this wedding feast has gone out to the main roads, has gone out to the far ends of the earth. All are invited. The good news of Jesus invites each and every one of us to attend this wedding reception. And the question before us all is how will we respond? You are invited. Will you accept that invitation? It's quite easy. It's quite simple. It means trusting in Jesus with your life, both now and forevermore. That is how you accept this invitation. And then that last part of the parable showed us that, that accepting this invitation is one thing, and then we are also to be prepared for this wedding feast. We are to be ready with our wedding garments. We need to live like Jesus is coming back tomorrow or later today. Hopefully he waits until after the West final so the bombers can win. At any moment, Jesus may return. Are we ready? Have we been invited? We have been invited. Have we accepted that invitation? Then if we've accepted, are we living out of Babylon in line with the purposes and the priorities of the kingdom of God? Remember, Jesus loves you. His heart has been shown that he is willing to die to purify you so that one day when he returns, he will look at his bride and say, wow, what a picture we get. For the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then there is this next vision, this next scene, and it's opened when John says, Then I saw. Which again is a reminder to us, and, and, and today is a great example of how these things are not happening necessarily in chronological order. Because what we have here now is a picture of the return of Christ, which really, if we were to put some things in chronology, Jesus would return before the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this is not what happened next, this is what John sees next. And he sees the rider on the white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. We have a picture here of a rider on the white horse. And when we look at all the ways that that this rider is described, how he looks, how he appears, we can be confident that this is talking about Jesus. Look at how he appears. First, he is described as the one who is faithful and true. And in Revelation 3.14, Jesus is referred to as the faithful and true witness. Now, if you don't remember that, I don't blame you because we skipped over Revelation 3. But that, nonetheless, this is meant to remind us that Jesus has already been described this way. And at his return, he is capital F faithful. Capital T True. He is also described as having flames, eyes like flames of fire, which is the exact way that Jesus was described for us in that first vision of John, or sorry, Revelation 1, 14. And on his head are many diadems, which is contrasted with the seven diadems of the dragon and the counterfeit beast in Revelation 12 and 13. They had seven heads with seven diadems, and these diadems are like crowns. They mean authority and power. And this dragon and the beast were counterfeit power. They were not complete. Now on the head of one rider who is faithful and true, there are many, numberless, a multitude of diadems. Here is true power. Come again. This rider is described as being clothed in a robe, the exact same way that Jesus is described in Revelation 1.13. Except now in Revelation 19, the robe is dipped in blood. And we have come to understand that this is from Jesus, the Son of Man, treading the winepress of God's wrath, later on in verse 15. The rider on the white horse is also described as the Word of God, which doesn't necessarily jog our memory for Revelation, but it does bring us to another book that John wrote. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the Word of God, who was with God and who was God which is a wonderful segue. I was trying to think of where I was going to go for our Advent series starting at the end of November. And I decided against what I threatened to do here in Revelation. We're not going to talk about the pregnant lady and the baby-eating dragon. You know, it's uh, decided against that because I had a hard time thinking I could make five sermons out of it. But we're going to stay connected to Revelation. Why? We're going to look at this as Jesus, as the word of God. We're going to bring ourselves to the prologue of John's gospel, and we're going to unpack what that means. So that's something to look forward to starting November 27th. Here, Jesus is the word of God. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which is again the same as Jesus was described in Revelation 1, this time in verse 16. And this sword becomes the way in which Jesus conquers all those who are opposed to him in verse 21 of this chapter. And lastly, the rider on the white horse is described as having on his robe and on his thigh a name written, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, which takes us back to Revelation 17:14, where Jesus is described as the King and Kings and the Lord of Lords, in the context of that great last battle which is exactly the same story that we're back in here in Revelation 19. So through all these descriptors, we can be confident that the rider on the white horse is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Come again, and he has is, he is arrayed before him these enemies, this host, who would, who would make war against him. And just has been the case in all these other times with the last battle. Jesus wins just by showing up. So not only do we know that what, who Jesus is by his description, but we learn the lesson by looking at what Jesus does. In verse 11, we are, we are told that in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So this picture is now of, of complete judgment. To finally overcome evil and all things opposed to God. And this is done in complete righteousness not in the imperfect anger or wrath that we may think of or feel or express, but in that perfect knowledge of good and evil, of that perfect knowledge of the state of every human being's heart, Christ will come again and judge perfectly and righteously and put to a final end all those things that are outside of the character and the nature of a holy God. He is described as striking down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron in verse 15. This is a fulfillment of a messianic prophecy, and if it sounds familiar, it should, because it is also prophesied in Revelation 2.27 and in Revelation 12.5. This is Jesus. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will also then tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty, which again brings us to Revelation 14, where we we, we read of this, this kind of grotesque, symbol of God's judgment, that after the Son of Man returns to bring all of his people with him, and he, he harvests the earth, that then there will be another angel that will harvest all of those still hostile to God, and the Son of Man will tread on the winepress of God's fury that will be complete, that will be the end, that will be the destruction of those things and those people. And lastly, Revelation 19 says that the rest of those the enemies were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse. And so what we have here is another grotesque picture where the marriage supper of the lamb which was pure and which was full of rejoicing and which was a party and a celebration is now contrasted with the great supper of God in verse 17 where the birds are gorging themselves on the flesh of the enemies of God. Two suppers who could not be any more different. And again, the question is, which supper are you invited to? Which supper do you want to take part of? The marriage supper of the Lamb or the gross great supper of God that symbolizes the judgment? Now, when Christ comes again, this whole picture reminds us that this is no meek or mild or small thing. Jesus is the rider on the white horse. He is faithful and true. He is the word of God. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when he comes again, it will be in full power, authority, and majesty. And he will judge all things completely and in righteousness. (laughs) So do we ever picture Jesus this way? I mean, Revelation just gave us one picture where Jesus is this groom who looks at his bride and says, Wow! in this beautiful, intimate love. And then in the next vision, he's coming with a robe dipped in blood and a sword from his mouth. And both these pictures of Jesus are right, and they're true. When we think of him, do we remember him in both senses? I know I've I've shared this before, because a few years ago, I was preaching on something similar, and I wanted us to capture this full picture of Jesus, and I, I brought us to Revelation 19, And then Seth Carr loved it so much that he drew a picture for me of Jesus on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood and a sword coming from his mouth. And Seth, I couldn't find that picture. Um, So can you draw another one for me, do you think? Okay, good. A thumbs up. That's great. Do we remember this picture of Jesus? It is part of who he is. It is a thing to be feared, but also a thing to be hoped for. Because Christ's return puts a final and complete end to all sin, to all evil, and to all death. And so as Jesus comes and and, and wins this final battle, simply by by returning, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. That is their end. No more counterfeit power. No more counterfeit worship. Just Jesus. Just his bride, his people, forever and ever. And so when he comes again, lift up your heads, for it is your redemption, your scary, awe-inspiring redemption. And the picture that is revealed to us by the rider and the white horse is that in the end, Jesus wins. He is true power. He is true judgment. He has all authority. He will rule and reign. Jesus wins. Which supper do you want to be a part of? And then we get to Revelation 20. And there's some things about the millennial kingdom. If you want to know more about it, talk to Pastor Earl. Okay, and then we get to Revelation... Come on. Come on. You guys going to let me get away with that? (laughs) I would like to. Oh, man, I wrestle with this a lot. A lot. So let's go to Revelation 20 together. This idea of the millennium, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus. And we're going to learn together, and you may very well disagree with me, and that is okay. Here's a bit of an overview for you. The 1,000-year reign of Christ is only mentioned in the first six verses of, of Revelation chapter 20. And so one of the things we need to acknowledge at the outset is that this is a very small detail of Scripture. Not unimportant, but not overly important. So unfortunately, when we talk about the church, this has become a very easily divisive issue. And I think we need to just put it in its proper place, which means we should study it. We should deal with it, but we ought not to make it more important than it is. And it only appears here in the first six verses of Revelation 20. But there are three main stances or interpretations that, that evangelical Christians kind of subscribe to. Three ways of reading this and understanding the millennial reign. Uh, so here are three millennial views for you. The first is what we can call premillennialism. It's a nice, nice mouthful for you. And there's different um, kind of iterations of all of these views. But in premillennialism, we, we, we'd be reading this maybe a little bit more chronologically. And they would believe that, that Jesus comes again before a literal 1,000-year one, 1, reign of Christ. So Jesus returns and ushers in a 1,000-year reign uh, of Christ with those uh, people of God on this earth. And then after that, Satan is, is kind of released and, and finally defeated. And then after the millennium comes this eternal destiny, this eternal um, new life that we have. Then there is post-millennialism which again makes sense in as much as Jesus returns after this 1,000 years is ushered in. So there's the church age and the church age will continue to grow and the kingdom of God will continue to grow until it grows into this millennial reign and Jesus returns afterwards. And we just acknowledge that that this has been a more widely held belief in the past and at present post-millennialism has fallen out of favor. There's not a largely held belief at this time. And lastly, then, there is amillennialism, which believes that the 1,000 years is symbolic. There is no literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus. His kingdom is present now. So So all of this kind of says, when does Jesus come again? He will either come again before the 1,000 years, after the 1,000 years, or it is all symbolic and there is no literal 1,000-year reign. Those are the three main ways of looking at this. And all three readings of Revelation 20 have some very good points to be made. They also have some issues, some drawbacks, some problems. And so that is where I find myself very unsettled. I I say, yeah, this is good evidence to believe this, but what about this? Or, oh, I see things from that way, but what about this? So because there is always issues or drawbacks, there has not been a large consensus. So what I would admit from the very beginning is that it is hard to understand Revelation 20 consistently with the rest of Revelation with the rest of Scripture. It is difficult. It is like wrestling a a buttered eel and trying to grab onto it. It is almost impossible. That's my experience. So because it's so hard, right? You've never wrestled a buttered eel before? That wasn't on my notes. Probably for good reason. But that's what it felt like this week for me. I was just telling you. So because it's that hard to come to a consensus, I want to say that it is more than okay to see this differently. It is fine. I'm going to let you know what I believe is, is the best reading and understanding of this passage. And, and if you see it differently, that's okay. There are people that love Jesus that are pre-millennial. There are people that love Jesus that are post-millennial. There are people that love Jesus that are amillennial. As for me, I'm a pan-millennialist. It will all pan out in the end. That's what I believe. So here's the big question. Who rules the earth? That's the question. That's the name of this sermon. That's, I think, what, what, what is trying to be understood or explained here in Revelation 20 at the beginning of that chapter. And so before we go through this, I want to remind you all of the ground rules that we put in place all the way at the beginning of our series. How do we do this in Revelation? How do we understand the book? Ground rule number one. The message of Revelation must be understood by the original audience. We come up with ourselves an explanation that only makes sense in our own modern understanding, our own modern minds, and is more than likely not what the book intended to say. Ground rule number two, Revelation uses imagery and symbolism that must not be taken literally. We need to be careful not to over-literalize the book. Ground rule number three, we need to use clues from the rest of Revelation to interpret accurately and consistently. So Revelation 20 doesn't exist in its own little box. The rest of the book needs to uh, be understood as well. And number four, we need to use clues from the rest of Scripture to interpret accurately and consistently. So we look to Revelation, and we'll also look to the Old Testament and the New Testament to make sense. And ground rule number five, sometimes mysteries will go unsolved. And to be honest, the millennial kingdom may be one of those mysteries. But let's look at it together. Let's dig in. I think my viewpoint will quickly become clear. Hopefully you'll find it compelling. And if not, we will agree to disagree. In Revelation chapter 20, John sees this vision. Then I saw, again, not necessarily chronological, just the next vision. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So Satan is thrown down into a, the bottomless pit for a thousand years. So the first question I have, have we heard of any of this before in Revelation? And certainly we have. In fact, in Revelation chapter 9, we encounter this bottomless pit. And so let's go there very quickly. Revelation 9 verses 1 to 2 and then verse 11. Just during the trumpets, John says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, thrown down. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, a key to a pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace And the sun and the air were darkened with that smoke from the shaft. Moving down to verse 11. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in the Greek he is called Apollyon. This is Satan. So we've already seen a picture of Satan being thrown down into the bottomless pit with a key that is able to open and close. But that's not the only uh, important part for us. In Revelation 20, Satan is described as the dragon, that ancient serpent. That is the exact same description as Revelation 12. So we need to go to that passage as well. And here's what we see in Revelation 12. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, "Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and authority of His Christ have come." Wait. So Satan is thrown down, and when does that happen? Now, the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Satan has been thrown down. He has been conquered. He has been defeated. That is what Revelation 12 says and the description of Satan lets us know that Revelation 20 is in parallel to that verse. Now, the throwing down and the binding of Satan demonstrates a severe limiting of Satan's power, a severe limiting of it. It's described here in Revelation 20 as Satan no longer being able to deceive the nations. And so one of the big questions that comes with this millennial kingdom is that does that mean that Satan's binding... That his imprisonment means he has no activity at all in the world? Or is it a severely limited and restricted activity in the world? I think part of the key for that is found in Mark chapter 3, in Jesus' own ministry. In Mark 3, Jesus is is, is being brought, uh, he's being accused by the leaders. And well, I'll just read it for you. This is Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 22. The story will tell itself. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying... Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub, by Satan. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And Jesus called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Well, Satan, oh, sorry, it was Satan. That, was, that would be an unfortunate slip of the tongue. What Jesus is saying to us here is that in, when he came, at his first coming, that first advent, this, this thing that we are about to celebrate at the Christmas season, he established what? The kingdom of God. And truly at that cross. And the reason Jesus was able to to do these things, the reason his followers were able to cast out demons, the reason they were able to win this spiritual warfare is because Satan has been bound, because he has been defeated, he has been restricted. This was true in Jesus and his life and his ministry because he established that kingdom at his first coming. And on the cross, he truly did bind Satan. Satan is bound, he is defeated, he is still active. But he is limited in that activity. He no longer has free reign. Instead, the reign belongs to Jesus. We have next in Revelation 20, this picture of the thousand-year reign of Christ. Picking up in verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The thousand year reign of Christ. Well, we need to talk about this number, the 1,000 year reign of Christ. And I will say, as I said from the very beginning, that this number is a symbol, not a statistic. And that is our ground rule number two that things are symbolic in Revelation and must not be taken overly literally. So I would say this, if every other symbol that we've encountered in Revelation so far has been symbolic, why would the 1,000 years be any different? If we've approached every other number symbolically, then it would be consistent. I think it would be in the same vein as as approaching this book the same way if we would understand the 1,000 years also to be symbolic. So you can be a, a, a premillennialist, and, uh, and, and, and you can understand this literally, but I would argue more strongly that, that the 1,000 years doesn't mean that a calendar flips over to 1,000 times. That this is a, a number that is symbolic for a great length of time, a perfect length of time, a complete length of time, but does not need to be understood literally because there is no... Uh, Indicators for us that we should treat this number differently than all the other numbers we've approached in Revelation so far. That's what I'd say about the thousand years. It is indicative of the reign of Christ and a long period of time, but it is symbolic. In that reign, during that reign, John sees thrones with those who have authority to judge, and he sees martyrs in the presence of Christ. And does that sound familiar? Well, it should. Because as we read together in the throne room vision of Revelation 4, John sees what? Arrayed around the throne room of God. He sees 24 thrones with the elders representing the people of God. He sees thrones around the one throne. He sees thrones around. Around Jesus Christ. And in Revelation six, John sees the martyrs of Christ also at the altar by the throne, calling for God's vengeance and his return, and God ultimately listens to them and answers their prayers. John sees thrones and martyrs, and he has already in Revelation four and six seen thrones and martyrs. So Revelation twenty is a revelation, sorry, a reflection of what we've already seen before. This is another picture into the throne room of God because Christ, the lamb that was slain, is in the midst of his throne. Now, if we're to understand and to read Revelation in this way, that means the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. It means that when you breathe your last breath here on earth, and when you die, you will be present with Christ at that time. This is also explained for us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Let me read that for you. Paul says to Timothy that this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, died with Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. In other parts of Scripture, Paul says that we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. And Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. This first resurrection is that when the people of God breathe their last breath on earth, they are present with Christ. They are part of that throne room vision of being with Jesus as he is in the midst of his throne. And they can take part in the reign of uh, of Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our true eternal hope is in a resurrected physical body, which will happen at the very end, after the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is not, uh, and the the millennial kingdom is talking about something quite different. Lastly, I would say that in in, in chapter 20, it says here that those who reign with Christ, who reign with Christ in his kingdom, will also be called priests. They will be priests of God and of Christ And they will reign with him for a thousand years. And so here is where I will really hang my hat as hoping being convincing uh, of this reading of Revelation. I'm going to bring our attention all the way back to Revelation chapter 1. So in Revelation 20, in the millennial kingdom, we are are called, the people of God are are called to be reigning with him in his kingdom. And they're called to be priests of God. Well, what does Revelation 1 have to do with it? This is what John told us at the very beginning, starting in verse 4. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So what has John said at the very beginning? What is he reminding us of now? He says that Jesus has made us a kingdom, that he has made us priests to the glory of God, his Father. And this is true now, and we still wait for him to come on the clouds to make it true forever and ever and ever. Jesus is the ruler of the kings on the earth. He is on the throne that is the seat of power in the entire universe. He has made us a kingdom and priests, and he will come again. And all of that is true in Revelation and all the rest of Scripture. It is true today in that throne room vision we mentioned. This is the key, the linchpin to understanding all the rest of Revelation. And even all of these troubles, even the great trouble, even everything that happens with the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, all happen under the sovereignty and the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. It is all under his control. He reigns now. And we join the reign with him when we die to be with him. And we all still await his second coming. And so then the millennial kingdom vision ends saying before the very end, Satan is unbound and then he is finally defeated. He is let loose for a little while. And we are given another picture of the last battle where everybody is arrayed against God. And is this a second last battle? No, I don't think that would be true. I don't think that makes sense. I don't think that would have been understood by the original audience. This is another look at the one final last battle. And Jesus comes and he conquers by showing up And now Satan joins the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire and things are finally at their end. Things are complete. This is the end. That's what I believe we can read and understand from the thousand years. So if you're looking to put a a name on my position, I would be an amillennialist. And and that is okay, I think. And uh, you might feel differently about it. But I would say this. The lesson we learn is the same. No matter what we believe about the millennium, two things are always true. Jesus reigns and he reigns now. And the second thing is true that the millennial kingdom is not our eternal hope. That happens later. And so we don't want to put too much stock into it. And when those two things are true, we can read this differently and still be on the exact same page. There you go. I did it. We are given one more final passage and I'm going to gloss over this. uh, It really doesn't, Or shouldn't be glossed over. (laughs) Um, But then we get the picture of Judgment Day. That is the fourth and final picture or scene that John sees here. In Revelation 20, um, starting in verse 11, what happens after this picture of the thousand years, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So on that day, that judgment day, which does happen after Christ returns, everyone goes to judgment. The great, the small, the rich, the poor, the Christian, the not. Everybody goes to judgment. <laughs> That's uncomfortable for me. Are you prepared to give an account for what you've done? Because as it goes on to describe, the only way to escape the lake of fire, that second death, is to have your name written on the Lamb's book of life. And the picture of Judgment Day is that there are two books opened. One with our accounts. That's our book. And then the Lamb's book of life. And We give an account, and we have to have our name written in that Lamb's book of life. And I I wonder at what my book looks like. Because it's full. It is full. And it's full of some good things, it's full of some bad things, some ugly things, some shameful things, and some things to be celebrated. But when I read the story of Jesus, when I read the good news, I know this for sure. My book is full of eraser marks. <laughs> and it's full of drops of blood. See, I'm going to give an account, and you're going to give an account, and my only defense is going to be to call on the perfect, perfect love and sinless nature of Jesus. It says, I know. I know I have fallen short. I know what my book says, and I am so, so sorry. But through the blood of Christ, shed for you, there's forgiveness. That's the last picture we get. Jesus, he loves. He wins. He reigns. But he forgives. And when you come before him, In knowledge of your own imperfection, in in knowledge of your own shortcoming. And when you fall at the feet of the cross, then your book too will become full of eraser marks and drops of blood. Next week is going to be fun. Next week, we get that final picture. Next week, we get to understand what we all look forward to. And I can't wait. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for revealing the nature of your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that that you've shown us that you care so much for us individually. You care so much for your church that you would shed your blood to wash us white as snow so that on the day of your return, you can look at your beautiful bride and just say, I thank you for that type of love. I thank you for the fact that you have complete power and authority and that you win this great last battle against sin, evil, and death just by showing up. I thank you that that battle has been won already just by who you are. I thank you that nothing in this world happens outside of your sovereignty, your control, or your reign. And I thank you so much that you've invited us into this reign with you in some way, shape, or form. And I pray that we would lean into your sovereignty, knowing that it, it comes out of this great love and power that you have for us and display to the world. And God, more than anything else this morning, I thank you so much that when we give an account before your great th- throne, that our books would be full of eraser marks and drops of perfect blood. Amen.